0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and share the Word of God with you this morning. We're going to continue on in our study of the book of 1 Samuel. So, if you would please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll begin with the second portion of verse 1, and we'll finish the chapter at verse 22. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 to 22. And if you have a pew Bible that you're using, you can find it on page 213. When you have found it, please rise with me in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped, at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us, from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hafti, and Phineas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has, been, there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for pains came upon her. Infallible Word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts. The seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seeds sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Uh, the typical link for movies a few decades ago uh, was about an hour and a half, like 90 minutes. The movie started to get longer, and some people thought three hours was too long. And so now instead of three-hour movies that you can't watch, what people do is because these movies are so long, they're like, I don't want to watch a three-hour movie. What they did was um, you can now binge-watch a mini- miniseries an hour long each for 10 episodes. So there's that. And I say this because for the next few chapters, it will feel like a mini series of sorts with each chapter ending on a cliffhanger. Uh, But before the TV, uh, the Bible, and the Bible did it better, obviously. I have three uh, short points this morning for you all from this chapter, and that's the fallacy, the fulfillment, and the fatality. The fallacy, the fulfillment, and the fatality. The fallacy. In the previous week, we ended with the word of Samuel coming to all Israel. After this statement, we won't hear from Samuel for the next few chapters, actually. Starting from the latter portion of verse 1, we come to this scene where we have the Philistines now introduced As the opposing force to the Israelites. The Philistines are not new enemies of Israel, but have been for some time and will be inveterate and continual enemies of Israel for a long time. So who are the Philistines? Well, they held the coastal lands and the foothills of Canaan. And eventually this land is given the name that we might be more familiar with, Palestine. If you didn't know, Palestine and Philistine means the same thing. Uh, The reason why um, it's called Palestine is because the Greeks named the Philistines Palestine. And the English is adopted from the Greek language. There is no P sound in Arabic. There's an F sound and a B sound, but there's no P sound. So in Arabic, you would also pronounce it Philistine as well. But during Samuel's time, the Philistines were dangerous rivals that were set against the people of God. The Philistines were aggressive expansionists, and they were most likely originating from the island of Crete or Cyprus or the coastal lands of Egypt. And they it would in the Bible, they call it um, Kaftor. you can look it up. There's many reference to the Philistines coming from a place called Kaftor, right? And they would arrive in the land of Canaan around 1200 BC. And they even enslaved Israelites for a time. We see that God would raise up Samson to defeat and humiliate the Philistines who had enslaved the Israelites. But now in verse 1, we see that the Philistines now have rallied at Aphek, right? And the Israelites, in turn, encamped themselves at a place called Ebenezer. These were two places probably about two miles apart from each other. And what they would do is they would encamp about two miles apart, and they would come together in the middle to battle. And from the start, the Philistines demolished the Israelites. No matter how you look at it, 4,000 men is no small number. It's a sizable defeat and enough to make the armies of Israel take a step back. And when the people came back to the encampment, they went to the elders who said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. The elders were wise in that sense. It presupposes that it is God who defeated them, not the Philistines. They weren't foolish and abandoned the notion of God when they were defeated, they knew who they were, they knew who their God was, and they knew what God had promised them. But here's the thing. Cursory knowledge of God was not enough to save them. If they really did know God, they would know what he said in his word. Leviticus chapter 26 I'm going to read from verses 14 to 17, and it says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache." and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God tells his people that curses will befall them if they were to disobey. You know, if they knew this, they would have at least taken a step back to ponder what the word of God said. But immediately after that statement, that the Lord has defeated us today, immediately after that statement, they say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest or box made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. It was only 2.5 cubits long and 1.5 cubits deep and 1.5 cubits wide. Um, That's like not even four feet long. It's it's not a, a big box. But inside the ark, they were to put the Ten Commandments, a golden urn containing manna and Aaron's staff. Each of these items have a significant meaning, which we won't go over entirely today. However, what was most significant about the ark was the mercy seat. And that was the lid on the box which completed the ark. And it was there that the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal to atone for the sins of the people, thereby appeasing God's wrath for the past sins and crimes committed against him. It was the one and only place in the entire world where you could get forgiveness of sins. It was right there on the mercy seat. And we now know that the mercy seat was a symbol pointing to and foreshadowing the final and ultimate sacrifice for sins meaning the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. So there is still only one way to be absolved from our sins, and that is to be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God performed as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, and that's from Romans 3. This is the importance of the mercy seat. There was only one place and only one way to atone for the sins in the Old Testament, and that was sitting right there on top of the ark. The elders immediately respond to the loss against the Philistines by sending for the ark to be brought to them. In some of your Bibles, you will see a superscript next to the word it in verse 3, because in the Hebrew it can be translated as either it or he. So if we translate it as he, it would then read, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And herein lies the rub. They thought, if we bring God into battle, he will have to save us. There is no way he would lose or allow himself to suffer shame, God doesn't take L's, He gives the L. And by bringing the ark into the midst of the battle, it was their God luck charm. This most assuredly, they thought, guaranteed their victory, or so they thought. There's a popular saying that's quoted in many movies and stories, and it's Act now ask for forgiveness later. Act now, ask for forgiveness later. It's meant to be gangster and funny at the same time. But by living out this mantra of acting now and asking for forgiveness later, we too are treating God like some good luck charm or even worse, we think that we can manipulate his character into forcing him to give us what we want, when we want. We'll say things like, well, he loves mercy, right? Well, that's great because I love sinning. But can God be mocked in this manner? When babies become toddlers, a transition happens. There's a lot of babies becoming toddlers here, and I guess... Even if you're not a parent, you'll be able to see it. They go from crying when they're hungry to all of a sudden negotiating. It's a huge leap in how parents interact with their kids. And it's amusing to watch a toddler going up to their parents with a piece of candy or chocolate that they're not supposed to have, but it's already half open. Maybe there's already some saliva on it. And they're asking their mom or dad if they can have some. And it's in front of everyone here as well. So what are you going to be? That parent that takes away a candy from a baby? Especially when everyone's watching you? You monster? When they become teens, they'll get a date. They'll get a date for prom. Plan every detail with their friends. And then they'll come and ask you, mom, dad, can I go to prom? After they planned everything. Because what are you going to be, that crazy parent that says no to your kid going to prom? What kind of trauma would you give them? Because in these scenarios, if you say no, who's the bad guy? Whose reputation would it hurt? If you don't come through for your kid, who will really end up with the short end of the stick? And by the way, this has never worked with my folks, and that's why my sister turned off so well. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I always came home with bruises, cuts, scrapes, my clothes torn, my shoulder dislocated, like, every day. I fell for them. Um... Yeah, but Israel's elders seem to have a similar viewpoint on this. This was a pressure tactic designed to force God's arm to move. They may have even like equated this with faith. This is faith. That's what they may have thought. And I believe that the vast majority of the world see God in this manner. Whether we identify as believers or not, Regardless of that, they see God in this manner. But this is not faith. This is superstition. Whenever we operate this way, we use God as a good luck charm instead of beholding Him as God. We want to manipulate Him, control Him, not submit to Him, and worship Him. We want to be dazzled by magic, not sweat in our sanctification. We want God as Savior, not Lord. There's no regard for the sin that incurred God's wrath, no regard for the sacrifice where Christ would take upon himself our sins, and no displeasement of the sin that made us to be in such a depraved state in the the first place. And this kind of thinking is manifested by maybe you grew up in the church and it'll manifest itself by prayer vigils maybe, fasts, revival meetings to get what we want. We'll say things like, you have something you really want? Do you really have something you really want? Then get on your knees fast and pray. And this is how we automatically respond. And if you think that's harsh, then you can ask yourselves, how many times have you fasted and prayed because you are so convicted to be holy as God is holy? So by the time we get to verse 4, there is a high honorific, entirely true, by the way, in reference to the ark being brought. It is the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, That's the leader of the armies of God enthroned on the cherubim where angels, the most massive supernatural beings in the universe would bow at his feet. They brought this God. And they're not wrong in this characterization about God. And we too think we're exempt or immune from taking God as a good luck charm. But we must ask ourselves, Instead of our prayers and fasts being a desire to be earnest with God, pleading with him in some manner, is it rather a meeting that is orchestrated or organized, you get the right music, you get the right speakers to hype you up, and you speak your prayers into existence. Because you think God will be forced to do your bidding if you follow some formula. And maybe you don't think you're that extreme. Yeah, I'm not that extreme. I'm fine. But you do your devotionals every day. But you do them because you think that your day will go better if you do them. Wow, I did my QT today. And all these things just started to click. When that happens, to whatever degree you Have changed the song. You're changing your singing from you are worthy to you are worthwhile. You are changing the song from you are holy to you are handy. When churches see God in this manner, you know that we have come to a time just like this one in 1 Samuel 1. We feel so good when things start to click when we do our Devos or after a hearty prayer vigil that we may also let out a loud shout, so much so that the enemies are initially shaken. But they remind themselves of what they did to the Hebrews, and they would not let that happen to them. They would rather die than become slaves they once made the Israelites be to them. And so in spite of Israelites, the Israel's enthusiasm, With the Philistines even taken aback initially, the Israelites lost, and the rest fled, every man to his home. And it says in verse 10 that there was a very great slaughter. That word slaughter is the word for plague. This wasn't just any defeat, it was a decimation. 30,000 men dying at one time is an unfathomable number. It's as if a hammer came down and just wiped them all out. Not only that, the ark of God was captured. God did not deliver that day. He came, and if the newspapers were to print a headline, the next day would have read something like, God suffers embarrassing defeat. God fails to deliver. Jehovah comes up short By a lot. The fulfillment. The text forces you to collide with two important truths. And number one is that God will suffer shame. God will suffer shame rather than his people carry a false relationship with him. Number one, God will suffer shame rather than his people carry a false relationship with him. And number two, God will allow for disappointment so that you can have your eyes open to see who God really is. As the story moves forward, God is revealing himself more and more to a blind and stubborn people. He's revealing more and more he is. And that's the key, isn't it? The ultimate purpose of God's word is to reveal who God is. You are not to use the Bible for self-medication, some pseudo-spirituality, or as a means of manipulating God. God is showing us who he is, and that's foundational to a relationship, revealing who you are to the person you are covenanted to. So what is he showing? Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, they've accompanied the ark in verse 4, and in the summary of the battle in verse 11, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy given in chapter 2. God had told Eli through his prophet that all the things that he said would come to pass and the sign to look out for that this would come to pass would be that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. So here's the irony. What people meant to use as a manipulation of God, a forcing of God's hand, God instead uses to carry out his purpose. Hafni and Phinehas are put to death. There is more, however. There's more. God may seem like the loser at first his people are decimated it seems as though he was savagely defeated god's very ark the ark that if you touched it you would die that ark was taken to call it embarrassing may be an understatement that is until you see from these verses that god is going to start turning things around the twist in the story is starting to happen. While the people dishonored the name of God, God is now starting to protect and honor it. Even the Philistines who may have despised Yahweh will only be able to do it for a short while. And this is the working of God being shown again. We may be too wrapped up in the bloodiness of defeat, the tragedy of the death of the priests, the shock of the ark's capture. But God is still there fulfilling his word that was spoken. And this is the grace that we see in judgment. By doing this, he is removing wolves from the sheep. He is rerouting his sheep from the valley of the shadow of death to green pastures. He is clearing the way for a new leader to come forth, the one that he has personally called. And so perhaps sometimes we need to go through bad leaders to know what a good leader is. Perhaps when we see bad leaders removed then, it should be to install godly leaders. Who are bad leaders? People who would lead you away from God. Bad shepherds are ones who lead the sheep astray from good places And so the sheep would wander and get caught in thickets, fall down cliffs, get torn up by predators. Good shepherds then lead you to God and his word. If anything, this section should show that God is working. It is his grace that allows for his judgment to remove false shepherds, even wolves, from the fold of God. It is his judgment that shows what needs to be removed from your life. So that you may be able to clearly see what it is that you need. The fatality. By the time we get to the second portion of the chapter, we see a picture of an old Eli. It was a pitiful sight. He was 98 years old, he was effectively blind, yet so anxious. The text says that he was watching. How can you be blind and watching unless you are straining your eyes out the best you could, even if you couldn't make out anything? The man bringing the news had to identify himself because Eli couldn't even make him out. And he was so heavy set that he couldn't stand while waiting. He is pictured here sitting. It was a good 20 miles, predominantly uphill from Aphek to Shiloh. So to make the trip then on the same day after you lose a battle, you would have had to have been in reasonably good shape. And when runners would come close to a city, the people watching for the messenger could tell if he was bringing good news or bad. That's why when people saw his clothes and his clothes were torn, there was dirt on his head, they knew it was bad news, and that's why they all cried out. But Eli, even sitting at the gate, couldn't tell what was going on. So the man had to go directly up to Eli to tell him the news. Eli knew the news would be bad. In verse 13, his heart would already be trembling. But there needs to be confirmation, and this man was running there to give it. And so the man gives him the fourfold major details of the battle. Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. That last detail was the fatal blow. Israel losing was tragic. His sons dying were terrible. But his heart had already been trembling over the ark, and when the last detail hit, it was too much. Eli fell backward from his seat, his neck snapped, and he died there. He had judged Israel for 40 years. God had appointed him. He knew what was needed to be a good leader. He was wise enough to discern the voice of God, but this was his legacy, the capture of the ark of God. Eli was the sole leader of the Israelites, and his failure to discipline his sons, while it may have been a national disappointment, it led to a national disaster. But the story doesn't end there either. Phineas' wife was pregnant, and it was too early for her to deliver. However, when she heard about the report about the capture of the ark of God, about her father in law and her husband and her husband's brother dead, her labor pain started and she gave birth prematurely. This proved also to be too much for Phineas's wife. And even though her well meaning friends would try to encourage her by telling her that it was a boy, she still died in childbirth. And her final act was to name her son with a name that summed up what happened that day. And perhaps she knew theology better than her husband ever did. She named him Ichabod, which means either no glory or where is the glory. But she also explains why she would name him Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken. This is where she understood the main thing there is to understand. The highest priority, even above the death of her husband and father-in-law, was the taking of the ark. Nothing matters if the glory departs from Israel. She knew that the judgment of God was worse than anything else that could ever happen. H.L. Ellison would write that the story of Phinehas' wife, would be one of the most touching stories he would read in the Bible. However, he would go on to comment that she was wrong in a sense. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed. And while this is true, the glory departing doesn't mean that the Philistines possessing God's footstool possessed God. They have not captured Israel's God. The glory departing, however, does put into question then what will happen to God's people because without the mercy seat, without atonement, they are all done for. And so Phineas' wife in her death spoke a deep truth we must understand today. When we continue to think that we can manipulate God into a good luck charm. When we find him more useful than fearsome, it should come as no surprise when the presence of God no longer abides with his people. In less than a generation, we can have Ichabod written over our church doors and as signage outside our buildings. When we are served with defeat, we would do well then to ponder first, rather than trying to force his hand with manufactured rituals. Even if it were to have semblances of service, we ought to turn to Jesus while we still can. Repent of our sins, the times we try to use God instead of submitting to him, and live now in accordance as he would lead his people. Our prayer should be that as Christ taught us, thy will be done. My prayer is that the glory of God never depart from this church. And while this may be a short chapter, I hope that we won't move immediately to the next line where we think that God may have defeated us. Let's bring the ark here. My prayer is that the glory never depart from this church, that we may ever be kept by the grace of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the sober reminder of your, in your word about who you are, of how your ways are higher than our ways, how your thoughts are higher than ours, and how we are to submit to you and not think that we can manipulate you Lord God, we confess that many times we think that we know better. We know what is best for our lives. And so that's why we need you more as a genie or some kind of magician rather than the God that you really are. But Lord God, we confess now that we need you as Savior and we need you as Lord. Help us now to live accordingly as your Spirit guides us and your Word instructs us. Help us to live obeying the words of our Lord. Let's take this time to pray. And as the word instructs us and warns us and guides us, there are times that we do have to struggle. As simple as a message can be, we know that it has deep connotations when we too also can be deceived into thinking that we could twist or manipulate God's arm into helping us. Rather than to obey Him and to submit to His will, to conform ourselves to him rather than him conforming to us. Let's take this time to repent and turn back to him so that our lives may be pleasing to him and that we may truly be able to enjoy his presence forever in deep covenantal relationship. Let's pray.